Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hanson ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The phone rang early Sunday morning. It was Eric O'Neill's supervisor at the FBI. He says, I need to meet with you. I said, okay, I'll come, I'll come downtown, I'll come to the office, and, and you can tell me what's up. He said, no, you don't need to. I'm parked right outside. This was December 2000, and O'Neill was still relatively new to the FBI. Now, he was used to weekend calls from work, but never had a boss come to his apartment in Washington. Now I was scared, because this doesn't happen. I don't think anyone's ever showed up at someone's house on a Sunday unless they were arresting them. You were probably walking out of your door in a cold sweat. Right. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm tracking every target, looking at top of buildings, thinking, you know, like, where where are they? But it was just Eric's boss in his car. He looks at me and he says, have you ever heard of a guy named Bob Hansen? And I said, no. And he said, good, because we want you to work undercover and help us catch him. Robert Hansen wasn't your typical suspect. He was a self-proclaimed patriot, a married father of six, and a devout Catholic who was fervently anti-communist. And yet, he spent decades selling American secrets to our arch-rival, the Soviet Union and later Russia. He was a spy. And he was working inside the FBI as a special agent. When the FBI discovered it had a mole in its midst, the Bureau needed a way to trap Hansen and, if possible, catch him in the act. So Eric O'Neill was assigned to work alongside him at FBI headquarters. Hansen had stolen secrets from the FBI. Now the FBI wanted to steal secrets from him. Hansen loved his Palm Pilot. Talked about his Palm Pilot more than his wife. The FBI suspected Hansen's most valuable secrets lived inside his precious Palm Pilot. He certainly wanted to protect this device, so we had to get it away from him. Much harder than it sounds, because Hansen kept the Palm Pilot with him at all times, in his left back pocket. Of course, he couldn't sit on it. So when he sat down, he pulled it out, and he put it in his bag next to him. That way he would keep right next to his desk. And we had to get him away from his bag with sufficient time to get it out, copy the whole thing, and get it back before he knew it was gone. 
So they hatched a plan. The ruse was pretty simple. Hansen's bosses would challenge him to a shooting contest at the FBI gun range in the basement of headquarters, 10 floors down from their office. In this most petulant way, he grumbles to his feet and he opens his desk and he grabs his firearm and he holsters it. And for the first time, he's forgotten to reach down to that bag. Hansen had left the Palm Pilot behind. An FBI colleague in the basement paged O'Neill when Hansen arrived. That was his signal to move. Went to his bag, kneeled down, opened all the pockets, rifled through the bag, found the Palm Pilot. You know, hands are shaking. This finally worked. We finally got it. I found a floppy disk and a data card, grabbed all three things, and ran down three flights of steps uh, to the sixth floor, where we had a tech team that had just been waiting. I handed over the devices and said, go, and they started copying them. His pager went off again. Hanson was now on his way back upstairs. O'Neill had planned for this. He traced the journey from the shooting range to the ninth floor, and when he did it at a dead run, it took nine minutes. The tech guys, they're like, yeah, we're almost done, don't worry. And I said, you don't understand. He's armed and I'm not, and if I don't get up there before him, it's game over. He waited, nervously. Finally, the door opened. O'Neill grabbed the goods and ran. I go back up three flights of steps, got into my office, got to his desk, kneeled down in front of his bag, and my heart just fell because I looked at his bag and realized I'm holding a Palm Pilot, a SanDisk data card, and a floppy disk, and there are four pockets that are open, and I have no idea which pocket these things were in. And I'm sitting there in front of his bag knowing I'm dead. There's no way I'm getting this right. I hear him coming through that main door. So I just dropped all the devices, best guess, zipped everything back up, ran to my desk, sat there, started to pretend I was typing something and put like the best poker face I've ever had right on my face. Hansen walked through the office's secure door. He comes through the main area, glares at me, goes into his office and slams his door. The whole wall shakes. And I'm right next to that wall right where my desk is, and just a few feet away through a wall is his desk, and I can hear the zip. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm dead. I've blown this case. I ruined everything. I'm a stupid rookie. It's my fault, and even if I survive, I'm never living this down. Robert Hansen wasn't just any traitor. He was the most damaging spy in FBI history. I'm Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. I've been reporting on the inner workings of this town for more than three decades. I've covered lying politicians, scandals, and a fair amount of history. But I have never, ever come across anyone like Robert Philip Hansen. You may have heard something about Hansen recently. In June, as we were working on this project, my CBS News team and I learned that Hansen had died in prison. An autopsy revealed the cause was colon cancer. 23 hours a day in solitary confinement for two decades is brutal on the body and mind. There was nothing suspicious about Hansen's death. He was 79 and in decline for some time. But his life? That is worthy of an autopsy, too. 
My team and I spent two years speaking with more than 50 of Hanson's friends, family members, and former colleagues to try to understand why. Why this self-avowed patriot would betray his country, his faith, and his family. Just who was Robert Hansen? From CBS News, this is Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. Episode 1, The Spy Next Door. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Robert Hansen seemed like a regular dad. He had regular hours. I know that he helped the kids with homework, went to their games, took them all to church on Sunday. So it seemed like a very ordinary, nice family. That's Nancy Cullen. She and her husband raised their two kids down the block from the Hansen family in the 80s and 90s. Bob Hansen, his wife Bonnie, and their children lived in Vienna, Virginia for most of Bob's FBI career. Their brick split level sat on a wide street amid homes with large green lawns and proper sidewalks. There's a park and jogging paths a short walk away. It's a quintessential D.C. suburb, popular with federal employees and their families. Nice, but not ostentatious. It was a close neighborhood, a close street, and our kids all played out in the cul-de-sac together, and we ran into each other and chatted a lot. Nancy and Bonnie Hansen were part of a women's group that met for lunch once a month. How would you describe the Hansons as a family in the neighborhood? Well, it was kind of like Donna Reed. Nancy is referring to The Donna Reed Show, a classic 50s sitcom best known today for its depiction of an all-American family. (laughs) May I have your name, little lady? Uh, Donna Stone. I- I'm married and have two children. And you're a housewife? Well, I... Well, now, don't tell me you're a spy for the FBI. <laughs> Nancy remembers Bonnie's shoulder-length auburn hair and that she was always well put together. Some even compared her to Hollywood actress Natalie Wood. She was always baking. She would come to the door in an apron. I mean, she was just... A lovely mom. I mean, she was a mom, mom, mom. And with six kids, you know, it was hard to keep them all under control and handle all of that. Bob Hansen, on the other hand, was a big guy. Six foot three or four, grayish brown hair, rounded shoulders, and sort of a lurching walk. Well, I think he was 
decent looking for a guy. He had a, a kind of a weird smile, a kind of maybe that a crooked, crookedish smile um, that maybe screwed up his looks sometimes. Outwardly, nothing that would suggest what was to be revealed. Nothing at all. No. I mean, Robert Hansen was a little bit reticent uh, when we'd have our annual Labor Day block party, for example. He he was a hangbacker. He he wasn't someone that engaged or smiled a whole lot. How did he dress? He always seemed pretty buttoned up, buttoned down. Is that how you say? I think that he wore a blazer to the block party one time and um, the only reason I remember that is my husband said, what's the matter with that guy? <laughs> Nancy's biggest beef with Bob Hansen? He sometimes parked his gray sedan on the street instead of the driveway. It just used to rankle me. <laughs> Damn cars parked on the street again. So he was as regular as pie. One key to understanding Robert Hansen is that he lived in compartments, a different person to different people. Now, we all do that to a certain degree. What you reveal about yourself at work might be slightly different than how you act at home or what you share with friends. The you remains consistent. Your behavior might vary slightly depending on the setting. But Hansen was unusual. His compartments were not only airtight, they were diametrically opposed to one another. It's like there were many Robert Hansons, each with his own moral compass. To navigate Hansen's many dimensions, we need to go back to a neighborhood <laughs> that could have been the inspiration for the Donna Reed show. There's some old-timey touches in this neighborhood. Robert Hansen was born April 18, 1944, in Chicago and grew up on North Neva Avenue, a working-class neighborhood near O'Hare Airport, a place I visited recently. Lots of Beautiful, single-family homes, modest, to be sure. Lawns finely trimmed. There are big oak trees and a Dairy Queen nearby. Almost to a house on Neva Avenue here are small American flags in the lawns or American flags hung by the front door. The year Hansen was born, 1944, America was still at war. But he grew up in post-war middle-class prosperity in a predominantly white community. His neighborhood was like so many in America. Affordable. Redlined to keep African Americans out. Dads who worked. Moms who stayed home. Hi, my name's Jack Hoshauer. I am Robert Hansen's best friend. Or, oh, what was that like? When you're somebody, uh, best friends with somebody from the time you were in high school... You share all kinds of experiences together. When Jack says he shared all kinds of experiences with his best friend, he means it. Jack is a man of his era, the kind who calls women girls, no matter their age. He is one of the few who knew many compartments of Robert Hansen, but not quite all of them. Bob's mother, Vivian, was a housewife and deferential as the times dictated. His father, Howard, served in the Navy during World War II, then worked as a Chicago cop for nearly 30 years. He was assigned to a squad that targeted communist sympathizers. 
One time as teenagers, Bob and best friend Jack were cruising the neighborhood when a police car pulled them over. Bob got out to talk to one of the officers. And the guy hollers, let him go, boys. His, his father's Lieutenant Hanson. He's a good guy. <laughs> like so many fathers of that generation, Howard Hanson was stern. Law and order on the job, law and order at home. He spoke little and wrote his son hard. For instance, when Bob was a kid, his father, over some transgression, rolled him up in a floor rug, trapping him inside, and left him there. Howard seemed to delight in his son's failures, so much so he bribed Bob's driving instructors to fail him on his first driving test. Bob did not talk much about his strained relationship with his father, but the message from dad to son was clear. You'll never be as good as me. My mom would occasionally run into Bob's dad in the store shopping, and he would say things about Bob that my mother had a hard time taking seriously because they were so negative. She thought he was making some kind of a joke. Hanson, an only child, went to public schools, Norwood Park Grammar School and William Howard Taft High School. There, Bob found refuge in his friendship with Jack. They met in Mr. Pupo's freshman biology class. So we were the uncool kids. We were the outside nerds. Bob loved to drive around with Jack. They would race their parents' cars. A cherry red Corvair for Jack and a 56 or 57 Dodge with rounded fins for Bob. At one point, he dreamed of being a Formula One driver. We'd uh, cruise around in the car and look at the pretty girls, and uh, as we got older, our our interests changed, but uh, also still like to look at pretty girls. <laughs> Bob graduated high school in 1962, and that September moved into a second-floor dorm at Knox College near Peoria, Illinois. There, he played intramural basketball, majored in chemistry, and perhaps most significant, took Russian language classes. But Howard pushed his son, said he wanted Bob to become a doctor. To that end, or perhaps to offset tuition costs, Bob spent college summers working at the State Psychiatric Hospital in Chicago, where best friend Jack joined him. Bob said, hey, I'm working at the State Mental Hospital, and there's student nurses there. And I said, oh. I think I'll work in the mental hospital. (laughs) Okay, so maybe it was less about tuition or preparing for med school. At the hospital, Jack and Bob were hired as recreational therapists, basically camp counselors. It was their job to do activities with the patients. They played gin rummy. They took patients on picnics and field trips to Wrigley Field to see a ball game. The nurses came, too. As far as getting dates went, well, the numbers were in Jack and Bob's favor. There were 13 student nurses. And I thought I died and gone to heaven, right? So, <laughs> When did you meet Bonnie? Bonnie was working at the mental hospital. Bonnie Walk was way out of Bob's league. Doe-eyed, smart, vivacious. She worked in the same ward as Bob and carpooled with Bob and Jack. And Bob and I had ride with her. Bob in the front seat, me on the back in the back seat. And we were unmerciful in our teasing of her as a female driver. 
How did she take it? I think she took it all right. In stride. (laughs) But even so, Bob was smitten with her. Not initially, I don't think. Yeah, he was dating a couple of other girls, nurses and other people from the hospital. And uh, now I, I would say I misjudged Bonnie at first. I misjudged her terribly. I thought she was just a, a pretty bit of fluff. And I've never been more wrong about a person in my life. After graduating from college, Bob followed his dad's wishes to pursue a career in medicine and enrolled in Northwestern University's dental school. It was 1966. According to Jerry Takasono, his dental school roommate, Bob was courteous, a good student, and a caring person. He had an eidetic memory. In other words, another word for it is like he had a photographic memory. He just knew a lot of stuff and had a lot of stuff, you know, in in his brain. Bob said that it was a double-edged sword because he never forgot anything, good and bad. Jerry says Bob rarely ate in the school cafeteria and went out to dinner with different women every night. My impression was it was companionship. He didn't want to eat alone, which I can understand. I, I found it interesting that it was always somebody else. There wasn't anybody that he, he had a lasting relationship with. There was one other thing that stuck out to Jerry. Most students went to lab dressed casually. Not Bob. Bob wore a suit every day. And uh, my advice to him after uh, the two quarters of human anatomy, which is probably like six, six months of dissecting a cadaver, you know, I told him to burn that suit. But Bob wore a suit every day, even in dissection, so... It smelled. Bob bailed on dental school after two years, but his same suit every day habit followed him from the cadaver lab at Northwestern to the halls of the FBI. By the way, the dark suits and matching demeanor later earned him a nickname, the mortician. Bob and Bonnie dated intermittently while he was in dental school. And she told me that the letters he wrote to her are what made her fall in love with him. I can only speculate what what he wrote, but uh, apparently she was extremely impressed. In 1968, they decided to tie the knot. People have told us two things about the wedding. The first, Bob's father Howard, seemingly always eager to torpedo Bob, asked Bonnie what she saw in his, quote, loser son. Bonnie defended Bob. The second thing... Bob had an affair with another woman not long before the wedding. She called Bonnie to tell her, screaming at her over the phone. But Bob downplayed the tryst and promised Bonnie that he would be faithful from then on. Bonnie took him at his word, and they went ahead. Best friend Jack was best man Jack. Nice Catholic wedding. I totally blew my best man speech at the reception. (laughs) Um... And we ate and danced, and that was about it. Married and still living in Chicago, Hansen decided to pursue an MBA in accounting, and like his father before him, became a Chicago cop. It was then Jack witnessed a transformation in his friend. Not long after the wedding, Bob converted to Catholicism, and he was all in. Bob was raised a Lutheran, but it doesn't seem like he was particularly devout as a child. 
Bonnie's family, on the other hand, was dogmatically Catholic. Bonnie brought Bob into Opus Dei, a strict, ultra-conservative Catholic movement. I went to uh, occasionally to a couple of his Opus Dei uh, evening things when I was visiting. Best friend Jack recalls how unbending Hansen became. And there's a time when they meet, kneel, right? And I knelt. But I only knelt on one knee. That's not right. You kneeled both knees. He was very, very orthodox in a ritualistic way. Opus Dei encourages its members to integrate Christian ideals into every facet of life. In fact, Opus Dei literally means work of God. The group is known for its secrecy. You might know the fictionalized version from Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Many call Opus Dei a brainwashing cult. Others an ultra-conservative Christian secret society. Obviously, some people fear what they don't understand. And although that version of Opus Dei was, you know, fictional, one thing is true. Opus Dei, though small, wields a lot of power. Bob's affiliation with Opus Dei would eventually bring him into contact with influential people throughout Washington. At this point in the early 70s, Bob was a Chicago cop, but he had his eyes set on something much bigger, the FBI. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Robert Hansen joined the FBI as a special agent on January 12, 1976. His demeanor there, yet another compartment of his personality. He was a very difficult boss and a difficult manager. Very arrogant, condescending. He had a serious complex about his shortcomings and how the FBI had treated them. His FBI career began at a satellite office in Gary, Indiana, where he worked white-collar crime which made sense with his background in accounting. Two years later, the FBI moved Hansen to New York. Neil Gallagher overlapped with him there. He was extremely reserved, um, always wore 
a dark suit and white shirt. You know, they, some may say a typical FBI agent, uh, but you couldn't carry a conversation with them. If a bunch of agents decided to go out to celebrate and have a beer after work, he's probably the last guy you'd invite because he just has no personality. We all know someone like this. They show up, but they're hardly noticed. In New York, Hansen continued working financial crimes, then sought a post where he could burrow into the world of spies. He was soon assigned to work on a database that tracked foreign officials and intelligence officers posted in the U.S. The position also gave him unrestricted access to the file room, where he spent hours reviewing Soviet espionage cases. Now, this was in the midst of the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviets each jockeying for any advantage in pursuit of global supremacy. Every scrap of intelligence could drive the countries toward war or bring them closer to peace. I remember it very clearly. And it was a very complicated time in America that in certain ways was reduced to a very simple time. Joe Weisberg worked for the CIA in the 1990s, but he's best known for writing a hit television drama, The Americans, about fictional undercover Soviet spies living as Americans in the D.C. suburbs in the 1980s. The show takes place during the same Cold War era in which Hansen operated. Why can't we do this together? Because I am a KGB officer. Don't you understand that? After all these years, I would, I would go to jail. I would die. I would lose everything before I would betray my country. And the simple idea was the Soviet Union was bad and we were good. And this was best expressed by Ronald Reagan. I believe that many of the things they have done are evil in any concept of morality that we have. When he started saying over and over again that they were an evil empire. And that really appealed to me because I had a sort of simplistic worldview, so I could hop on board of his simplistic worldview. And I took it so seriously that I wanted to go fight against the evil empire. The Cold War brought daily bouts of anxiety and paranoia for citizens and governments alike. For a lot of people of my generation, this was a kind of daily fear. A significant number of people, having gone through the drills we went through, where you would go sit, you know, kneel under your desk in case nuclear weapons were coming, right? That's insane and wouldn't have done any good, but that's what that's what they put us through to prepare us. But there was no one who wasn't aware of it and frightened by it. Frightened because both sides had nuclear arsenals large enough to destroy humanity many times over. That's why it was so important to keep the Cold War cold. By the early 80s, about five years into his service, Hansen was transferred again, this time to headquarters in Washington, assigned to the budget unit. And I dealt closely with those people because they told us about the future, you know, where we're getting money and how we'd operate it. The budget unit was where David Major, an FBI counterintelligence agent, first met Hansen. People never want to be in the budget unit, but you had to take your brightest and your best people to do that because everything revolves around the budget. And so that's when I met Bob Hansen. David Major gave Hansen TSSCI clearance. That jumble of letters stands for Top Secret Sensitive Compartmented Information. What it means is access to some of the government's most guarded secrets. The budget people are some of the most sensitive and important people in the Bureau. There was a few people who knew everything. And because he was a budgeteer and an analyst, he almost knew everything. As such, Hansen could graze on a buffet of sensitive FBI documents that could be used for budget justifications. 
Bob had a unique way, and you probably know people like this, but if you started telling something that you think would be a secret, he would start to whisper. And I'd say, Bob, what are you whispering for? <laughs> We're in your office. We're at FBI headquarters. What are you whispering for? Yeah, yeah, I know, but let me show you this. That's literally what he did. Let me show you this. <laughs> and I would say, what? You stop it. But he would never do that. He was, you know, he was playing secret squirrel, I guess. Hansen had a reputation for being nimble with technology and information. But he was dour, brusque, holier than thou. Some knew him as homophobic, almost cartoonishly anti-communist, uber-conservative on law and order. He gained a reputation for aggressively pushing his Catholic beliefs and was a regular at pro-life marches. Hansen attended church daily, often the 6 a.m. mass near his house, sometimes the lunchtime Opus Day meeting near FBI headquarters. You go into his office, and, and it's striking because he had a crucifix uh, on the wall behind his desk. James Bamford, a former TV news producer who covered national security, got to know Hansen through his work. Over the years, Hansen and Bamford got to be friendly. Bamford sometimes took Hansen out on his houseboat. Hansen even attended Bamford's wedding. Hansen and another mutual friend constantly pressured Bamford to join Opus Dei. And they kept asking me to come with them to go to an Opus Dei meeting. I had no interest in it, but uh, just to keep peace in the family there, sort of... They kind of wore you down. Yeah, uh, I said, okay, fine, okay, we'll go. Bamford was raised Catholic, but had drifted away. So one night I went to uh, Opus Dei with them, and uh, it was like, you know, advanced Sunday school or something. So, you know, been there, done that, and I thought, okay, now let's Did it kind of bore you to tears? Yeah, uh, it's just not my thing. Regularly attending Opus Dei meetings in downtown D.C. may have had another benefit for Hanson. If I was his spy master, uh, uh, I might suggest that that's a good place to actually meet and socialize with senior-level U.S. government officials. In fact, on Sundays, Hanson attended the same Northern Virginia church as Louis Free, director of the FBI. Hanson did have some friends in the intelligence community, like Ron Milotek. I found him an amazing person, very charismatic, very intelligent, very well-informed, about many things from politics, current events, international relations, to religion, theology. That was our original point of interest, religion. They worked alongside each other in the late 1990s in the State Department's Office of Foreign Missions, where Hansen was the FBI liaison. They'd have lunch once a week, sometimes would go to dinner. Milotech found Hansen unfailingly loyal and generous. He was a guest at Milotech's wedding and ended up volunteering to videotape the whole thing. At Milotech's son's bar mitzvah, Hansen himself performed a mitzvah. He rescued it. Observant Orthodox Jews don't use electricity on the Sabbath. So when the electrical timer malfunctioned and the lights went out... Bob Hansen stepped right up and volunteered to adjust this or to reset the timer so that the lights would come back on, which was something that no Jewish person would be allowed to do. He was a solid citizen, uh, extremely reliable. This is Paul Moore, an analyst whose specialty was Chinese espionage. For a time, Paul and Hansen were carpool buddies at the FBI. Those who liked Hansen found something in him that others didn't. 
Paul says that Hansen was interested in life's big questions. Small talk really wasn't his thing. Would, would you mind if I ask you a question? Oh, sure. Uh, Go as ahead. As we start. Um, do you believe that what you're doing right now uh, is what God intended for you to do with your life? Journalism? Just what you're doing now. Yeah, abs- sure. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Now that... That I didn't ask you that question because I'm I'm creepy, or uh, no. or wants you to come to our church uh, dinner, uh, <laughs> but that that little moment where you thought this is what is this question? That moment is is something which was experienced by friends of Bob Hansen, as opposed to acquaintances. Bob was trying to put people on the right path where he could, and he would he would use it as an opening to a. Uh, a conversational gambit. Hansen bounced around the Bureau's counterintelligence operation perhaps a bit more than his peers, but it was pretty typical for agents to get promotions and move desks every few years. The FBI's Soviet analytical unit provided Hansen a prime perch, entree to a full array of FBI investigations involving Soviet agents. Hansen, an agent, supervised analysts who would take information gathered from the field and try to make sense of it try to piece together the puzzle. Bob King was one of them. He shared a cubicle with Hansen and another analyst. So you interacted daily? We interacted daily, yes. He would come across as very cold, and if people didn't perform the way he thought they should, he ignored them. <laughs> Hansen and King weren't necessarily friends, but they worked closely together covering really sensitive stuff like the identities of Soviets surreptitiously working for the U.S. and super-secret government operations. If that information got into the wrong hands, it could be hugely damaging. King, Hansen, and Paul Moore also went to monthly meetings of Washington's Apple Computer Club. The club's catchy name? Apple Pie. The pie spelled P-I. This was the 1980s, and computers were primitive. But Hansen was fairly adept with them, Again, Paul Moore. I had just gotten my Apple II Plus uh, computer. And then he said, you know, what you really ought to do is study programming language. And so he showed up with a book on C and C plus and C++. And what I wanted to, to use the computer to do was to find out uh, how to get through the locked door on, uh, on the fourth floor of the, of the mansion in the Macintosh uh, adventure game. Hansen's goals were a little more ambitious. He was more of a nitty-gritty guy. Uh, we'd go to the uh, meetings of the, uh, of the Apple uh, Club in Washington every month, and Bob would peel off and talk to the guys who, were, who wanted to hook up uh, their machines to an oscilloscope or something like that. Before Hansen had met Bob King or Paul Moore or Ron Milotech, he had already turned on them. By the late 70s, Hansen had crossed the line. We don't know what exactly pushed him over the edge. Was it money, glory, that he felt unappreciated at the FBI, his father, the thrill of it? Whatever it was, one day in 1979, he walked into an enclave of Soviet spies and made them an offer. In 1979, Hansen was still relatively new at the FBI, just three years in. Bonnie and their three kids were living in a small house in Westchester County, a bit north of Manhattan. Life 
was getting expensive, and FBI agents weren't paid more to compensate for living in one of America's priciest cities. The FBI asked Hansen to create a national counterintelligence database, everything and everyone vital to the KGB and the GRU, Russian military intelligence. Hansen learned a lot, and quickly, inside knowledge of where to find Russian spies on American soil. Among the key insights, the KGB and GRU used different covers to hide their spies. The Soviet news agency TASS served as a front. KGB spies would pose as journalists. The GRU laundered its spies through Amtorg, a Soviet exporting agency. If an American company wanted to do business in the Soviet Union, it almost always went to Amtorg first. This is where Hansen's career as a mole officially began. The moment and place he turned traitor. Again, Neil Gallagher, who worked alongside Hansen in New York. He was assigned to the uh, Russian Counterintelligence Division. Not long after he was assigned, it was about five months, that he walked into Amtorg Trading Corporation. The Amtorg Trading Corporation was based in a white, 22-story office building on the corner of Lexington Avenue and 40th Street in Manhattan, two blocks from Grand Central Terminal, and a few doors down from the Chrysler building. Everyone knew what Amtorg was. Everybody in that division knew what Amtorg Trading Corporation, and you also knew that at different facilities around New York, there is varying complexity of coverage, that anybody who would walk into a certain facility, you may be subject to a court-approved uh, video coverage of you walking in. He had to find out that there was no video coverage of the front door of Amtorg. So on a fall day, Hansen took the elevator up to Amtorg's offices, dropped off a letter, and walked out, evading the FBI's watchful eye. It was a brazen but calculated approach. Not long after Hansen walked into Amtorg to offer his services, someone was onto him and eventually caught him red-handed in his own home. It wasn't the feds. The person who caught him was his wife. That's next time on Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. This series was reported by me, Major Garrett, Arden Fari, and Sarah Cook. Our team of reporters and producers also includes Jamie Benson, Pat Milton, Jake Rosen, and Ellie Watson. Our producing partner is Neon Hum Media, our senior producer is Odelia Rubin. Zoe Culkin is our associate producer. Original music and sound design by Hansdale Shee. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Executive producers for Agent of Betrayal are Arden Fari, Shara Morris, and me, Major Garrett. Special thanks to Mark Lima, Megan Marcus, Ingrid Cyprian Matthews, and Steve Racy's of CBS News, and Jonathan Hirsch of Neon Hum Media. Thanks for listening. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Spoiler alert, it's neither. 
Happy Egg, we believe happiness of the hens is what actually came first. Because without happy hens, there would be no such thing as happy eggs. You know, eggs with delicious orange yolks. Those come from hens who are raised the happy way on eight plus acres of family owned farms. Choose happy at happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.